Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Leading with James Ashton. This podcast invites two leaders to compare notes about how they learned to lead and their successes and failures at the top. This is the final episode of our second series. We're supported by Saxton Banfield. They're the executive search firm and leadership advisor that has built its reputation over 30 years. Their team are experts in many specialist areas across the public, private, and not-for-profit sectors, advising on key leadership appointments and championing diversity. Find out more about their services at saxbam.com. My first guest this episode is Chris Grigg. He's Chief Executive of British Land, the £12 billion property empire that includes Paddington and Broadgate developments in London and investments in Sheffield's Meadowhall Centre and Drake Circus in Plymouth. He's joined by Chris Jones, the Chief Executive of England Athletics, the sports organisation that supports more than 1,500 affiliated running clubs, which have more than 180,000 registered athletes. I start by asking Chris Grigg about his biggest leadership challenge in 11 years at British Land. I'm not sure there's one. Um, Maybe we're always supposed to make our job sound more complicated. I think certainly early on, there was a a bunch of things I'd come into an industry I didn't know particularly well. So it was just the business of being credible in in the context of my colleagues and also investors. So that, that I think, took a bit of time. Uh, I, I think the second thing that, that has gone on really has been wanting to change the culture of the place. And I, I think that is something that, you know, in different ways I come back to even now. I think we've made a lot of progress, but it is, is something that, that uh, you know, it's a, it's a timeless challenge in some ways, I think. I mean, some people looking at British land, you know, it was, of course, a big retail portfolio, big commercial portfolio, you know, one of the biggest property companies in the UK would say, well, surely it's it's the challenge of retail, it's the challenge of the portfolio, but you see that just as part of the weft and the weave of, of doing business, if you like. Yes, I think that's right. And, and I think that if you can get that culture right, then the day-to-day issues of the business become easier to deal with because you end up with a group of people who are working together, um, seeking to solve problems in an effective way. And so I do think if you put it that way around, it's more sensible. Of course, on a day-to-day basis, there are going to be days when you're not thinking at all about the culture and you're just thinking about you know, what we need to deal with tomorrow. Absolutely. And I'll come back to culture. But Chris Jones, your big challenge, because this, I imagine it's quite a small organisation, effectively, you're running on a day to day basis, but you are overseeing, there's the support there for, I think, at least 1500 running clubs, there's 170,000 or so members. So um, how do you see it? I think first and foremost, you've got to make a conscious and clear decision around where you intervene, where you can really make a difference and what you are responsible for. And obviously with a staff of around 60, a turnover of about just over 8 million, we're a not-for-profit, heavily dependent on public funding through Sport England and the rest through membership and sponsorship. There's only so much you can be expected to do when you've got a sport that is 180-odd thousand strong in terms of registered athletes from the ages of 5 to 91, 1,800 member clubs and bodies. We license 4,000 road races every year. There are 7 million people who run every month. There are 2.6 million people who run every week. So if you take those big numbers into account with 60 people with a relatively small financial operation, you have to make some conscious decisions around what you are best placed to deliver and then where are others better placed than you to Mm. deliver? Mm. And so partnership working is key to that. And I bet those volunteers and the the members and so on all have a view how England Athletics should run, and uh, you have to take that on board as you lead the organisation. It's very difficult because you want to try and please everyone, but I've quickly learnt that that is impossible. 
I recognise that everyone has opinions, particularly in sport. It's extremely emotive. People are extremely invested in it. And the lion's share of work that goes on in our sport is done by volunteers. Mm. So you have to make difficult decisions. I go by the kind of rule of thumb roughly that there are 20% of people who will be converts, who will always support you. There will be that middle ground of, say, 60% who kind of are not quite sure, but they're convertible. And then you've got maybe a small percentage at the end that you'll never be able to please. And that frustrates me because I like to think that we're all in this mm. together and we would share the same ambition of strengthening the sport. But I guess that's just the way it is sometimes. That must be thirty, forty thousand 40,000 runners then that you will just never get on site. Well, we've got most of our members are runners. So mm. there are only 40,000 of our 180 odd thousand athletes that come from track and field clubs. Uh-huh. Is a relatively small sport and is dominated by young people, largely under the age of 20. And we have some challenges there that we need to prevent youngsters dropping out from the sport. But the lion's share of our members are over the age of 30, are runners. Mm. And more and more running clubs are joining England Athletics uh, each year, over 30. And they're largely coming out of gatherings due to the great work of Park Run, the 4,000 road races that are organised mm. by volunteers and race directors across the country and of course recreational running groups through our run together program which has been live now for a couple of years so it's a great story but obviously mm. keeping everyone happy is a challenge yeah i'll come back to culture and how you your team of 60 operate but chris grigg coming back to you you've done work on culture but you want to do more what what has changed and what what haven't you got round to yet i think when i joined we were quite a traditional uh, operation and by that you know we were male dominated we were most people were either chartered accountants or chartered surveyors, and that's the you know that we certainly needed those skill sets. But as the world of real estate changes, we felt it was important to embrace and encourage a broader range of skills into the business. And to do that, you've got to change the place because you can't feel like you know you're only going to succeed if you have those sorts of qualifications. So that needed to change. That openness of mind then began to become, I think, self-fulfilling and, and, and encouraging more people to join. We did some specifics. And then there was you know, a very specific piece around diversity uh, and making sure that, the, that the, we were drawing our talent from different places, both in terms of gender and so on and so forth. So I think those were the, were the parts. Yep. I think you can always get better at that stuff. And what are the skills that you've brought in then that, that British Land Today wouldn't have had in, in 09? Oh, I think uh, a bunch of things. I think one obvious one would be around marketing and sales. So that would be one. And at its heart, understanding our customers and our customers' customers better. And to do that effectively in the more modern world, the digital skills and all the stuff that goes with that. So I think it's, it's actually what customers want, which is a, which was has been a novel idea in property it, over it, the years. It didn't seem quite as revolutionary as I, I arrived, as yep. I subsequently realised that some people found it. But yeah, that's that I think has been. And look, it's not just been British Land. It's been a it's been a movement in a whole bunch of sure. property companies. But it's definitely changed. And similar to Chris Jones, I think your thirteen billion or so portfolio, but actually quite a tight team quite a small number of people how many people and yeah. how do you work together i mean we've we've got about 600 people on the payroll yeah. uh, so you know but for a FTSE 100 company that is quite a small yep. number so in many ways we have quite a uh, kind of contracted out model so we have a lot of advisors who will help us you know if you think about the business of development that, that you'll have everything from the people who are actually building it to the people designing it to the people the consultants who figure how to do that best but getting those 600 people well-aligned, working together, thinking as a broader team. Again, something that we, we work hard to try and make sure is, is optimal. So as CEO, you probably should know all their first names and, and everything. 
yeah, you always hope to be in that position. <laughs> it never quite works out. But, you know, that's that's got to be the, the aim, that you're at least hitting 80 90% of those people. You know, with turnover, you... You can't expect to know everybody. I think just a warm handshake will, will gloss over all of all of that. Probably. Let's hope so. Yes, yeah. Chris Jones, then you're sixty. Then what's the what's the culture that you've brought in? Because you've been the boss quite a while. I think is it fourteen? Four- no, I've been there fourteen yep. years, and I've been nearly eight years. Yep. Uh, I did a year as interim as well. So you must know everyone's first name if it's only. I 60. do. Good. I do, and there are real strengths there. Of course, the ability to kind of make decisions really, really quickly, to kind of front up whites of the eyes with individuals and have have conversations on a real personal level. I, I guess the drawback that it, there is, if this is a drawback, you can become too close to the individuals. Mm. And I guess there's a risk there of losing some objectivity on certain situations. That said, we have a very low staff turnover. I believe that we're collegiate as a team. I encourage the team to be very flexible and fluid. And whilst you might reside in a certain area of the organisation, there is connectivity that's required across the organization in a real horizontal way so you need to be pragmatic and pretty grown up in that environment and not too uh, precious about you know your direct report is speaking to another head of department because we just haven't got time to and resource to worry about that kind of stuff so we need to be dynamic to make decisions really quickly to service our sport and, and that's what we're there to do. Have you changed the, the makeup of the team in the way that Chris has done at British Land? Because the theme, if you like, of, of sports bodies, sports governing bodies, membership bodies, has been a real professionalisation, I think, over the last couple of decades. I think Jack Buckner said on one of your earlier episodes that the sector is is youthful still and it's still evolving quite rapidly, actually. I think Jack said he was youthful, didn't he? <laughs> He is, actually. (laughs) He's younger than I do, and I think he's got 15 on me, but don't tell him that. I think the organisation is moving at a rapid pace, and as organisations, we need to adapt to the sector, but also externally to everything that's happening happening around us. And, of course, that relates to participation trends in sport and physical activity. Things are different than they were 10, 15, 20 years. But also financially, and we need to adapt as well. We were a nigh on 100% dependent on public funding when we were formed out of the old three A's in 2006. We're now 28% dependent on government funding, albeit the financial model has changed. So we've gone through two or three iterations of structures during that time because you just need to continue to adapt and evolve. Chris, on the adapting point, I'm interested in um, just cover off not just the high street, but the retail space, how you've had to adapt, how the industry has had to adapt. There seems to be this theory that everything will be all right if we just review business rates. But uh, maybe it needs a bit more than that. It seems a long shot that that would be the whole <laughs> answer indeed. But, you know, look, it, it, it would help. Uh, there's no question that retail is going through a massive change. You know, at its heart is the mobile phone, is, is, you know, all forms of, if you like, modern technology that puts more pricing power into the, and, and, and ability to view into more people's hands. I think that's at its heart. And I think that will have a knock-on effect. Overall, there's no question that when this is all said and done, there will be fewer shops. On average, those shops will be smaller and actually they will be better at serving the consumer because the others will die. But we're still not shrinking retail space, are we? Or are we? In the last 24 months, we've seen the first signs that the numbers of shops in the UK are dropping after a very surprise... I was surprised quite a lot over the previous probably five or six years that we were still increasing it does seem to you know we've kind of reached 
gone past now peak shops, I suspect, uh, and will continue to yep. see them decline. So decline, and how much do we need to take out of the, the broader estate, the UK shopping estate, to, to get to something that's manageable? I think in the end it'll be quite a lot smaller yep. because if you think about, suppose today we say roughly 20% of, of shopping's online. Mm. Now, bear in mind that quite a lot of that online is actually picked up click and collect and so forth so the function of shops is for sure changing but if that goes to let's say some people will tell you it'll go to 40 percent so if we say just do the basic math are we going to see 20 percent less shops over time mm. that wouldn't seem at all surprising to me it will just take a while you're going to have to see local authorities be yep. more imaginative to see alternate uses in particular in town centres. Uh, and that will take a while. But I think the direction of travel is pretty clear. So your challenge then as, as the boss is not necessarily shrink because no business likes to shrink and we seem to be going backwards, but rebalance, repurpose. And you said, I think retail will come down to about a third of the estate. Yep. Lots more commercial. These mixed use sites at places like Paddington, and uh, I spotted an article recently writing about your uh, your new serviced office offering. Yep, that's exactly right, called Story, uh, which we've now been doing for three years. I think that you're right. Uh, for us, you know, I, we've had the big advantage that you know, we've really focused o- over an extended period on being, if you like, at the, at the very effective end of shops where our customers make money. I mean, at the heart of it, yeah. if they can make money in each individual shop, over time we figure that'll work pretty well. But, you know, we're not immune from this. Valuations have declined. Uh, f- footfall's been for us relatively stable, but as you'll know, it's uh, for the industry generally, it's declining. Mm. So there is this backdrop of pressure on landlords and on retailers. Mm. And um, Chris Jones, I mean, you know, unlike the high street, I mean, r- running never goes out of fashion. So is it about, what's your KPI? What what do we judge you as a success on? Is it about getting more people running? Or is it, uh, if you like, a quality of the running is about pushing people through up, up through the clubs to, to elite status? So our ceiling, if you like, performance-wise is Commonwealth Games. Right. And everything beneath. So we're the kind of big meringue, if you like, beneath a cherry on the top, which UK Athletics deal with yep. in terms of the world-class programme. But the likes of Dina Asher-Smith and Katarina Johnson-Thompson, they are members in our clubs and they will compete for England from time to time in Commonwealth Games and what have you. So we need more Dina Asher-Smith and Katarina Johnson-Thompson's coming through that funnel to compete for, for GB. So that is a priority for us. We take around 40 teams to compete for England every year at home and abroad, uh, really developing athletes ready to compete for England, but also for, for GB. But, but it's more than that. We're about boosting the capacity of volunteers in our clubs because without volunteers who are qualified to coach uh, or assist, or lead running groups, we'd struggle to cope. And there are around 27,000 coaches, assistants and leaders in this country, but we need more. And we also need to develop the quality of those coaches because some of those will have aspirations to coach at a higher level one day. So boosting the capacity of our clubs, sustaining participation first and foremost before growing it, you know, keeping that number of athletes in our sport, making sure they're getting a good experience. And then if there's capacity in the sport to grow again, but also we have a relationship with the wider running ecosystem, as we call it, 
there are a number of providers out there who we collaborate with parkrun is one is parkrun a friend an enemy or friend absolutely a friend in fact paul and nick and and tom have been actively involved for many many years with running clubs and track and field clubs i think nick's wife is a team manager at one of our big clubs out just in the southeast uh, region and uh, nick's son is a, a a very um talented young runner so we collaborate on a number of different levels. We have an insight and research function, which provides data on what's happening within the running market. And we will collaborate on that front as well so that they're understanding trends in running. We're understanding trends in running as well. Mm. And a number of our member clubs will be volunteering, of course, or running on a Saturday morning or maybe on a Sunday morning at the junior run. It's a win-win situation. Park run succeeds the core sport of athletics succeeds sure. as well. Did we truly capitalise on the Olympics, do you think? I think so. I mean, I can't comment, obviously, for the top-end stuff. Um, no, but it was always about grassroots, Absolutely. About getting people out. Absolutely. And, and, it, and you came in as you were CEO almost the moment I was. You know, Olympic, the Olympics finished. Yeah, I was. Well, if you look at the pure metrics of number of clubs, number of people in those clubs, then the numbers are moving in the right direction. The number of volunteers is steadily grown, but perhaps we need to grow a bit quicker to cope with this demand particularly when we're talking about coaches and officials athlete performances at age group level across most of the events are generally good we have a real challenge in transitioning athletes from junior success to senior success and i think a number of sports wrestle with that particularly around the ages of 15 16 17 do the kids just get bored I think it's hard work to be really good as well. And I think there are a number of things that are going on around that time in their lives. You know, you've got GCSEs, A-levels, mm. going to university, etc. Work, social media creates other pressures as well. And I think we as a sport need to look at our core product as well. Are we providing what the youngsters mm. need, particularly in a track and field sense when it comes to competition? Is it right to expect youngsters to travel, say, five, six-hour round trip? to maybe compete for half an hour or so and then they're there for the rest of the day and then they go home when you can go to your lo local netball court and compete for an hour and yep. then you can do something else. Yep. So those are the kind of things we need to think through as a sport. Running has probably got it nailed in that respect because of the advent of concepts like park run right. where you can go and do your right. run and do something else for the rest of the day. And volunteer commitment is smaller in time as well. Mm. I do it, James. We were just talking before just before Chris and I, you know, one of my daughters was a, a reasonably serious athlete. And I do think that the support she received from the club out in Hertfordshire was just terrific. Mm. And not just in the context of her running career, which ended up, you know, curtailed by so many by injury. But, you know, as a woman, the influence of those coaches was just fantastic. Mm. And the, I was always uber impressed by the amount of time they gave up and didn't see it as a give up saw it as a whatever and they were ter terrifically good for her and, and you know years later whenever she's at home she'll go off and see them and so I, I think some of those things we underestimate the kind of yep. impact on dare one say broader society in mm -hmm. a very positive way because at the end of the day yeah. to be a decent athlete you know you have to live a very clean life you have to be very focused on your health and all those things and that's a a terrifically good thing and often it's dealing yeah. with kids who might not otherwise get that guidance and actually chris one, one of the things i've spotted doing this run of podcasts and you know comparing the the ceo of a plc you know everyone turns up at the office every day at british land they're all paid they're all paid to be they want to be there of course and then i contrast that with the administrators and the charity bosses and then th this real challenge 
what leadership can you lend the, the volunteer who is turning up purely because they want to be there? And that is a challenge, I think. Yes, I think it is. And, you know, it does, I'm sure, require a different way of leading mm. because at the end of the day, we, as, as bosses of commercial organisations, we do have you know, maybe a slightly larger stick that you can wield in the end. Having said that, you know, I do think that most of the time, if people aren't enjoying their job in the modern world, you know, we've got full employment. If you're not creating an environment where sure. people want to come to work, guess what? They'll vote with their feet. It's just a different format. So I think there's similarities and differences. So what is your style? I mean, you've never struck me as a stick wielder, but your style of managing and leading. Do people, do the team need to like you? I think it's one of those really nuanced conversations, I think. You, First of all, I think you can't kid yourself that you're going to be people's friend in the conventional sense, because in the end of the day, you are responsible for their earning capacity. So it is a complicated relationship. And imagining that everybody is just going to be friends is naive. I think it's easier if people respect you and generally people respect you if they kind of have some regard that you're a decent human being. Having said that, I've worked with people who work on a different basis and they can be effective too. So I think as much as anything else, for me at least, it's about being as you are and having and being comfortable with yourself and trying to work into that a leadership style that works. Do you agree with that, Chris Jones? I do. I think consistency is absolutely imperative if you're a leader people need to know what they're going to get and you need to be consistent in that respect whatever your style and whatever your views on things are i think authenticity is really important and compelling purpose you people need to know that you are enthusiastic about what you are trying to do and that you are prepared sometimes to roll your sleeves up and get stuck in because as an organization with limited resource we can't afford to be too hierarchical in our approach. Mm. I regard myself, I came through the classic pathway, if you like. I came through the sports pathway, whereas a number of other people in the sector have come from the commercial sector into the sports sector. So I know what it's like for the, for the coach development manager who's out on a Wednesday evening in Stratford-upon-Avon, in the cold, in the rain, de working with volunteers. And I try every month to get out to a to a club or two to meet the volunteers, to keep the ear to the ground, to find out how we can be a more effective organisation because that is really important for us as a membership body. Because as you say, you know, you are as a sports person first before a CEO. I mean, you're very credible, you know, cricket, rugby and, and running. So you've tried a bit of everything. I'm not so sure many people would say I was a great runner, but... Um... Well, it reads well on your CV anyway. <laughs> yeah, we won't go there. I was very, very fortunate. My parents signed me into my local cricket club at the age of three weeks old, and then I was playing mini rugby at the age of five or six. I saw firsthand the impact that sport and volunteers make to young people and older people, and I know what a difference it can make to people's lives because I felt it firsthand. And so that has always inspired me. My dad's been groundsman at our local cricket club for 50 years now, and Every club has someone like my dad. So every club that I go to, I recognize that individual or a couple of individuals who live for that club, for that entity. And that is a stark reminder to me as someone who's fortunate to work within the sport that the majority of people do it as volunteers. And we are very, very fortunate to be in that position. And every time I hear a whiff of any kind of disgruntlement at work about conditions and whatever, I say, hang on a minute. You know, just remember that there are a number of people who would give everything to be in this position. So, you know, respect the job, respect the sport and, and plough on. Mm. I do think, though, that this topic which you touched on of purpose 
is, if I think back over my career, that is something that has gone way, way up the agenda for commercial organizations compared with, you know, I would say even five years ago, but compared with, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it's a very, very marked difference. And it does change the ground rules, I think, for commercial organizations. And, and in that sense, is a really big shift. You know, chief executives were pretty much paid in order to, to deliver results for their shareholders. I don't think many people today would say that that is broad enough or enough, necessary, but not sufficient, if you will. And some of those trade-offs between different responsibilities have definitely become more nuanced and I think we'll, that will only grow you only have to you know think about the pressures that society is bringing to bear on business around climate around other factors to see that that's just going to shift and make people's lives more complicated but I suspect therefore we in the commercial sector are going to have to learn stuff from people who've had to balance those things more broadly yes. historically I think that's really interesting so that makes the job harder uh, different. I don't think one should uh, it, it, uh, come back to what the other Chris said. You know, it's a privilege to be doing one of these yep. jobs. Can't spend all your time saying how hard it is. No, no. Some people do, though, Chris. But no, no yes, they, they don't often uh, get plaudits for doing it. Tell me about the. I'm just looking at your CV and and whereas you see Chris Jones embedded in sport and throwing balls and all sorts of stuff. You know, there was a period when you came in in '09. Incidentally, for the listener, replacing Stephen Hester, who was off to do his national service and run run Royal Bank of Scotland. Yep. You were the banker doing property. Yep. There was a real. It felt like there was a there was a period of of acceptance, if you like, and there were some people who'd never really left, never worked outside the property industry, who um, weren't afraid to say, "Well, what's this guy? What's he doing here?" And so on. How do you deal with that? I think the best way of dealing with it is to ignore it. To be honest with you, because I think there will always be what whatever aspect of it is, and it's part of the job. There'll be people second guessing what you should or shouldn't do. It's a bit. Other Chris was saying there'll always be that ten to twenty percent who say uh, you should be going, you should be zigging, not zagging. Mm -hmm. And I think to get bogged down in one piece and people saying, well, you don't uh, bring enough to this job, uh, that, that's just part of it. What I did do was bring different things, uh, and you know that's. But at the end of the day, it's not that group that I have to answer to. So ignoring it, unless you think, well, that's a fair point. I need to adapt or change a bit or learn a bit, and all of those things, of course, are part of that way of working your way into a job. But you must have learned a huge amount, regardless of, of what the critics said. We've talked about this before. I think it was early 09. You know, lots of stuff was going down. There was property companies in worse shape than yours, but you had to sell assets. You had to shore up the business yep. in order to take it forward. And sure. I know you're taking a deep breath in now. It's very much part of the legacy. It's, it's historic, I know, but I think it would have probably framed your thinking as you've gone on many, many years. Yes, I think inevitably that was kind of a formative experience. Yep. And in many ways, I, I always took the view that if everything had been fine, the chances are I wouldn't have got hired into the job because yep. people wanted somebody who had capital markets expertise, you know, who had big scale management, which I'd done elsewhere. So, you know, hey, as I said at the outset, it, it felt kind of a privilege to be in that position. Mm. And so I had other strengths and, you know, it was in some ways the luck of the draw that Stephen, of course, they were related. Stephen was off to do something else, which was in quite a mess. And so, you know, those things unfold in particular ways, which yeah. sometimes that's how your career goes. Yeah. Chris Jones, tell me about how you stepped up because you were the um, head of strategy. I've always been a bit down on strategy heads. I, I don't know. You've convinced me otherwise. I I always think maybe I'm right. They're there a bit like lawyers. They set out all the options and then CEO has to make the decision. Am I being really awful? I was. I would, in hindsight, have called my role 
I was almost the head of operations, if you like. That's much better. I was jack of all trades, master of none. We were a kind of organisation. A bit like any CEO. Yeah, and some would argue I'm a bit like that now, really. You're a generalist, really, and you can't afford to get sucked into too much detail. You achieve very little. And why would you when you've got other people who are paid and responsible for that? So that's a difficult balance. And I guess in that role, I was very, very similar. We had a situation where we had an executive chair for a short period of time following on uh, from the, the departure of the previous chief executive. And I spent a lot of time supporting him, supporting the board, because, of course, he wasn't full time. And I was really the only one at that time in the national team. We beefed the national team since then to give some specialisms across different areas. I'd say I was very fortunate at that time because... I got the experience of learning about a whole range of different areas, you know, from digital to finance to uh, marketing to comms, yeah, a range of different areas of expertise. So I was probably in the right place at the right time to benefit. Really. So did you have everything you needed or did you have to what do you have to learn stepping into the job? I think Jack Buckner said this as well, that in his 20s to through to his 30s and 40s, he changed significantly. I absolutely changed significantly. I was very... Um, short on patience, should I say. I wanted stuff to happen immediately. Uh, I was always, always tried to be, you know, you treat people the way you want to be treated yourself, etc. So none of that. But I was, I could see what was possible. But if other people took a bit longer to take, to get that kind of vision, I, I, I'd really struggle with that. So I think I've learned to control that and temper that enthusiasm, should we say, since then. I think an organisation has a responsibility to invest in the individual, but the individual also has a responsibility to go out and get support and recognise where they need to improve. I've been luck very lucky to network and learn from a number of people within the sector who I've just approached and said, can I come and spend some time with you? Mm. Martin Phillips, who's just resigned as the WRU CEO, spending a bit of time with him. John Steele, who was former chief exec of UK Sport, Baroness Sue Campbell. People like that who have been successful. How have they been successful? And also finding out sometimes that they've struggled as well and they've wrestled with this stuff. And you think, well, actually, that's okay. It's yep. all right to struggle with some of that. Yeah. Uh, Chris Grigg, mentors for you. There must have been people who have helped you, helped you on the way. Sure, a lot. And I think that if you can learn from every boss that you have, that's pretty good. Even if part of that, the flip side of what Chris was saying is to say, you know what, I'm really not going to do it that way. Because, and that I think you can learn a lot just by watching and listening. I think I... As an example, on the other side, somebody like Lloyd Blankfein, who was CEO at Goldman for a long time, although you know he's, he's criticised by some, as a risk manager, what would I do in a crisis? I always play back through my head. What might Lloyd have done? What would Lloyd do? Yeah, and and you know, for me, that's a great learning. Uh, it's also you know, don't make uh, flip comments at the end of interviews, which I think Lloyd will regret to the end of his days on that comment around uh, doing God's work. But you know. You can learn from that too. I was going to walk you to the lift later, Chris. Yeah, exactly. But, and and I have buttoned my lip. Exactly. I should say, 20, uh, you had 20 years at Goldman. So, you know, there are certain companies, organisations, you look back over, I don't know, say the last 30 years, 20 years, where leaders have sprung from in numbers. McKinsey, Procter & Gamble and Goldman. So yep. what is it, do you think? 
I think partly it's a, a matter of time and place. So Goldman expanded in UK relatively early on, both, and they ended up just hiring a lot of very good people. That helped, and somehow I fluked my way in there. And then it, for, for reasons I've never really been able to explain, it became a group of people who were kind of constantly pushing one another to be better. And I think that made it a good school for people to learn about some of the stuff we've been talking about and, you know, to know how to manage people, but also, you know, reliance on ex personal excellence. How do you get better? Kind of expecting the most out of yourself every day. And I think, you know, for some weird reason, that I still don't fully understand those factors came to play at scale. And as you know, people ended up going off to do all sorts of quite interesting things. Yeah, in all, in all directions. And I've tried to track the Procter & Gamble theory, the fact that you had companies who were, industries were liberalising, people needed the marketing and the salesman skills. And as a result, a lot of people have moved up and moved into BT and, and others. And with Goldman, I suppose it's not quite a selling technique. It is quite a you know hard-nosed management leadership, if you like, that people think, if you hire from Goldman's, I'll get this. Yes, I think, I think that, although I was actually talking to one of my ex-colleagues there, and actually, I was thinking about he doesn't fit that picture mm. at all. So I think maybe somehow the alumni kind of picked up this pattern of having a certain style. And as it happens, many of them don't. But it's worked OK in terms of getting people into jobs. Well, I'm not sure you do, really. As a, you know, something, I don't know, Goldman has a certain image, you know, and obviously people do hire Goldman. But as you say, it, it takes all sorts. It does and, and always did. You know, there was probably more, <laughs> I hesitate to use the word diversity in this context, but, you know, there were plenty of different people and, and some of them did well. What I think they all le did learn, somebody was using this word earlier today to talk about people, almost everybody who did well in that place had some degree of edge. And how it manifested itself actually is broader than you think, but you definitely needed a bit of edge to get it. Edge, yeah. Is it, does edge work in the, in the world of athletics, do you think? Yes, I mean, traditionally, sport, you'd, think of, you'd think of edge through a kind of performance lens where it's about, you know, yeah. um, you know how, do you, how do you find that, that extra uh, margin to be better? We challenge each other as a team, but we're all very, very different. And I think, you know, the way in which obviously we have values and behaviours that we subscribe to as an organisation, as an executive team, but we're very different in personality and approach. And I think that is that is really important because I guess if you'd have asked me, the question when I was 18, 19, you think that a leader has to fill us a certain prototype, you know, the loudest voice and really commanding and controlling. And I've learned that that is not the case. People lead in different ways with different styles and balance to a team is really, really important. And um, I, I try and surround myself with people who bring different skills, who are more intelligent than me in different ways, because um, I've never quite understood why people would surround themselves with people who always say yes because it makes no sense sure. whatsoever do you ever think i don't know how i got away with that uh, it's certainly from early days when i've talked to people going into leadership positions then there's a recognition that suddenly they're there and that the buck stops with them but i don't know if that carries on you know down the years if you like i i can't think of an example where i've thought that but there have been several occasions where i thought i could have done that better and i've learned from it and i think where you get things wrong or even where you could have done it better, you need to hold your hand up, recognise that you could have done it better, apologise, and don't do it again. Mm. And I think openness and transparency in that respect is really important from the leader because people will mirror behaviour as well. If they look and they see, well, that's acceptable, people will mirror behaviour and it will affect the culture. And I think that's really important. Is it uh, lonely, Chris Grigg? Again, I think you can 
overstate that. I come back to what I said before. In other words, I don't think you can wander around and expect everybody to tell you the full story, exactly what they feel, because they will always have in their mind that, you know, there are judgments involved about their career. So, you, But I don't think per se, it's not like nobody will come down the pub with me. Uh, you just have to recognise that it's a slightly different relationship. And, and, and most of the people I've talked to in these sorts of jobs do find some sort of way of kind of balancing that part with other people in their lives, friendship switching groups. Off. That's switch the mentorship group. group again. That's the Goldman Sachs what, alumni. Whatever it is, or or just a f you know friends who are in completely different industries, or are at the same level, or a completely yep. different thing. So I think you do need something where you can you know the metaphoric equivalent of going home and kicking the cat is is you know it's better not to be the cat for obvious reasons. <laughs> sure. And, well, your but, kids might even take you out for a drink now. I don't know. Yeah, they do. All you know what it was great was when my son actually took me out for a drink and said, "No, no, Dad, I'm paying." That. I think it was a big moment for him. Uh, it was a surprising moment for me, but you're kidding me for having said that. But you know that was that was a neat thing. As your as your children get older, they have different perspectives. Yeah, good for him and good for him. And Chris Jones, what would you? What might you have done differently? What would you this, this lesson to your younger self, if you like? Calm down seemed to be the message for you in your twenties. Uh, I was playing a lot of rugby at that time, so maybe that had something to do with it. it kind of head up enthusiasm and what have you. Yeah, reflect, take some time, don't make quick decisions it's okay to take a bit of time just to digest information don't come to conclusions too quickly because some decisions that you make particularly in these roles affect people's livelihoods the integrity of the organization its financial integrity and so on and so forth so yeah just take some time take a breath and seek counsel if you're not quite sure seek seek a second third fourth opinion because um it's amazing how your thought process can evolve through that. Do you agree with that, Chris Crick? Yes and no, because I think all of that's exactly right. And yet there are other times when you just kind of know what the right decision is. And you look back and you thought, I just equivocated and I kind of didn't really, really want to take the decision, particularly if it's a tough decision, particularly if it's about people. So you kind of kid yourself that just one more opinion might be useful. And that's actually when I found when I've looked back, I thought... I could and should have made that decision earlier. I kind of knew, mm -hmm. and I found a variety of ways of equivocating for slightly longer than I. Should I think be. that can be that. Sometimes it seems to be the, the habit if you if you're running, say, a, a partnership-led firm where there actually are 700 people who all think they have uh, have a view, and then you you kind of feel you need to go around them, and then sometimes you do just need to trust your gut, I suppose. Yeah, I, th I think it, but it'll be a balance because there are other times when you look back and you went, no, oh, I just took that decision without sufficient mm. information. One of my colleagues always used to say, you know. Take the decision the first day you think you have enough information. And don't forget, if you don't take a decision on day one, on day two, you have two decisions to make. Go do the maths. After a week and a half, it gets quite trying. Yeah. So I think it's, I've always thought it's a balance. A wise person, yeah. Great. Uh, Chris Grigg and Chris Jones, thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. We are supported by Saxton Bamfield, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Find out more about their services at saxbam.com. You can also find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes of Leading wherever you get your podcasts. A new series is coming in 2020.